Hello and welcome to episode 117 of the Batflip Crazy podcast, where you'll always find enthusiastic, data-driven fantasy baseball analysis and strategy. I am your host, Toby. Today's episode was actually recorded this weekend as I was driving home from the Barf Draft uh, that took place on Saturday. For those who aren't familiar, it's a 14-team OBP and Quality Starts uh, Fantasy Sports Industry League uh, with guys like uh, Justin Mason, Sammy Reed, Bubba, you know, Saris, Howard Bender, um, a bunch of other guys, uh, Matthew Wood, uh, just a, a bunch of really sharp players. Um, so it was a really good time. And what I like to do as I'm going to and from these drafts is record some podcasts. And in this particular one, I recorded um, uh, some answers to questions that folks uh, had. Um, as I was driving, I solicited some some questions. And I think there was about uh, 13 of them that I was able to get to in this podcast. So apologies in advance. The audio and my voice is a little bit uh, shot. Uh, I was pretty much like I must have been yelling or something like that. Just the, the whole time it felt like uh, a struggle to uh, to speak and enunciate. So I know that'll probably come through. And then there's one part where uh, the audio, there's like a little bit of a switch in the audio just because um, the recording cut out. And so I needed to start it again. Um, and so uh, you'll notice that in a, in a little bit of the middle of the podcast. But really love recording these on the road segments. It's just a lot of fun, a little bit of free form. I don't have any notes in front of me. Um, so really just thinking about strategy and and the way that I think through um, fantasy baseball. So hopefully you will uh, find something helpful in it. Thanks to everybody who had all those questions. As usual, you can reach me on Twitter at BatFlipCrazy. Uh, if you have not already and you enjoy the podcast, please do uh, give it a rating and review over at iTunes. Always very, very appreciated. So here it is on the road, recording live, or not live, I guess, but driving home from the barf draft. Um, yeah, let's get this party started. All right, we are on the road again for the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. I am driving home right now from the barf draft. Uh, it is a fantasy baseball industry or fantasy sports industry draft. Uh, that happens every year in San Francisco. It stands for the Bay Area Roto Fantasy League. Uh, there's a bunch of guys in the draft, including uh, my co-host, uh, Bubba, uh, is one of the people in it. Uh, Justin Mason is in it. Uh, Sammy Reed, Eno Saris, uh, Doug Thorburn. There's a number of folks who are uh, Howard Bender, a number of folks who are in the fantasy baseball industry who... Uh, participate and it's always a great time. Uh, today it was seven hours worth of drafting. Uh, so I drove on the way here, you know, I was going to record the podcast and uh, I probably should have because it's dark now. Uh, I thought maybe that I would leave before it was dark, but it's dark. So I'm going to have a little bit of a difficult time reading the questions. So I'm going to do my best at doing that. I'll ask for your, all of your uh, patience in that. But I left this morning at 8 a.m. from my house, drove about three and a half hours or so, including traffic into San Francisco. We drafted for about seven hours, and now I am hitting the road. And I provided uh, folks with a, um, 
Well, I asked a question on Twitter for folks to just ask some questions. And so what I thought would be a lot of fun, uh, both because it helps me make the time go by and also because hopefully it's helpful to you um, as I talk about them, is just to go over some of the questions that I got. I think there was a lot of uh, really great questions that were pertinent both to this uh, particular draft but then broader uh, fantasy baseball strategy. And so let's just, uh, let's just dive in. Uh, so the first question comes from a big fan of the pod um, and somebody who's been supportive for a very long time, Cody McDonald at uh, C.O. MacDo. And his general question, and I'm just going to provide the general questions because um, I can't read uh, longer questions because I'm driving in my car and I, and I value safety um, and my safety uh, and your safety. So I won't do that. But his general question is, you know, and this is kind of a, a question that I think is an, kind of an age-old question in fantasy, which is, you know, what, uh, how much of success in fantasy, fantasy is due to the draft? Um, how much of it is due to fab? Uh, what is the importance of, of each one, uh, e- each of those pieces? So the actual drafting and the actual fab. Uh, the first thing I'd say is more generally, I mean, it obviously, all of these questions are going to be dependent on your league settings, right? Um, knowing your league and understanding how competitive fab is going to be. Like, are you in a league where people are really um, focusing in and spending a lot of attention doing research in between fab periods or if it's daily fab doing a lot of research and being proactive do guys tend to sit on the waiver wire for a little while how deep is your league right in 15 team leagues uh, versus 10 team leagues Um, i think 15 team leagues with fab it's a lot more challenging to find and and get talent whereas with 10 to 12 team leagues you know, there's a lot more talent that's available every single week, and so maybe a little less research um, is necessary. So I think a lot of it depends on the league. What I will say is that the more and more I play, you know, and again, I'm playing largely NFBC 15-team leagues, the more I find that fab is increasingly important. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. Number one is for the draft, you know, you can lo- win or lose a draft during the draft, right? If you have an, uh, an awful draft, it's, it can be really hard to recover from it. If you have a very good draft, right, that can make your season a lot easier. But generally speaking, you're going to have some hits in the draft. You're going to have some misses in the draft. And the question is, how can you use FAB to address some of the misses, um, address some of the weaknesses that you have in your team, and I really think that that is a really, that's a talent that you have to, uh, you have to be, you know, it's something that you can, you learn, right? Because I think in a lot of leagues, especially in today's fantasy landscape where, you know, the, the IL is being used more often, there's a lot more platoons that are happening across baseball. I think the, the skill of being able to squeeze out that extra value by putting in guys, for instance, who have, you know, maybe in the NFBC you play where, you know, it's Monday through Thursday lineups for hitters and then the weekend for hitters, Friday through Sunday. In that particular instance, you know, sitting guys who only have two games maybe and and starting guys who have four games or knowing and being able to roster guys ahead of time, like a week or, or two ahead of time when you know they have a soft schedule coming up or a lefty like a, you know an Eric Thames where you can put him in against a bunch of righties if they're going to be facing a righty heavy rotation. 
So I think that has an increasing amount of importance. And it's not just the fab piece of it, I think. It's also the roster management, right? It's putting together uh, a bench that has some flexibility, right? So that you have replacements at every single position, you know, getting those multi-position eligible guys that you can kind of move in and out, Um, getting guys that not only are able to address some of the weaknesses in your squad from a category standpoint, at least in Roto, but also from a positional standpoint, right? So if you really, really need, you know, speed and, but you have really good middle infielders who are already getting you speed, being able to identify some potential sources of speed outside of the traditional areas could be a very challenging thing. Or finding a guy, like if you need power, not just looking for a guy who has power, but looking for a guy that you're actually going to be able to put in your lineup, you know, that's going to be a step above whatever else is in your lineup. I think that's a real um, skill, and it takes really knowing the, the league, like knowing the league, staying uh, paying really close attention to um, to upcoming schedule, paying really close attention to team news so that you, that you know which guys are being moved in and out. And so I think more and more I believe that that type of roster management, not just fab, but roster management is absolutely is absolutely critical. And so I don't want to put slap like a number on it. I think it's really just a continuum of uh, that's dependent on your draft, right? The how good your draft goes really uh, really impacts how much you're going to have to use your fab. But in some of the deeper leagues, like you're always going to have to use fab. You're always going to have to grind. You're always going to have to do that. So what I would say to answer Cody's question is I think both are really important. The key is not to ruin your team and make it impossible to make up make that up in your draft. And then to really be able to track the team news, um, track upcoming schedules, track your roster weaknesses, um, track starting pitcher matchups, really being able to pay attention to all those things and being able to grind out that extra value. And it becomes more and more important or increasingly important, another word for more and more, increasingly important um, to, uh, uh, to do that at the deeper the league that you're in. And so I hope that is, is helpful and, and helps uh, answer your question, Cody. Um, and then the second uh, part of his question is, can you win NFBC punting stolen bases? And the answer to that is yes and no. Uh, yes, you can certainly win a single league by punting stolen bases. You can absolutely use that as a strategy in an NFBC individual league. So if you're playing in a satellite league or you're playing in, um, you know, on the NFBC, you know, a standalone league that doesn't have an overall, you can certainly win doing that. One of the reasons, there's two reasons that I'm primarily against punting categories. And again, it may or may not be the most strategic thing, some of these reasons. But the first is just like from a gameplay standpoint, like I really enjoy the challenge of constructing a balanced team um, in the Roto format. That's why I play Roto pretty exclusively um, because I just find that that, um, that's a lot of fun for me personally. And then um, I think the second piece... um, uh, of that is that you really start at a disadvantage. So, you know, if you punt stolen bases, and by punting, I'm 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 guessing that you're going to finish in kind of the bottom three of stolen bases. If you're if you're punting right, right, don't don't half-ass it. Just like go for the for the full punt. If you're doing that, like in a 15-team league in the NFBC, 
the max points you can score at that point in time is 135, right? And so maybe you're going to be better in those offensive categories, but you also need to be really, really good in those pitching categories because if saves don't come through or you get unlucky with wins or some other type of bad luck or injury happens, it's going to be hard enough to max out in those other four offensive categories, even though you punted saves. Um, you know, because like batting average for or stolen bases, just like batting average is hard to get with power, right? Um, and with with RBI in some instances, right? And so, um, I just think you're putting yourself behind, but that doesn't mean that you can't win. And if you build a team right, and maybe if the draft, if you let the draft come to you, and that's what ends up happening, and you find that to be the best way to win, then that's certainly a possibility. But I just find that the the margin of the the margin that you have in doing that is very very narrow. Um, because you can only afford to lose, you know, 15 additional points outside of just those stolen bases. And, you know, that, that, that can be hard. So it's certainly possible, um, but I wouldn't recommend it. And then if you're in an overall, I, I just don't think you should do that because, you know, from a, just a monetary standpoint, the overalls are a, a good incentive to try to uh, compete in the overall. And if you punt one category... It's very, very hard to compete in the overall unless you are absolutely elite in the other categories, and and that's just um, uh, nearly impossible to do. And so I would say, yes, you're, you, you can win in your individual leagues, punting stolen bases and then FBC. Um, I wouldn't advise it, but you can, but you cannot, you definitely cannot do that in, a, in, in an overall competition and expect to uh, compete um, in an overall competition well uh, if you punt a category. So I hope that was a um, helpful uh, answer to your question there, Cody. All right, the, qu- the second question is from at uh, the human rain delay, and it's discuss strategy for overpaying and or punting stolen bases and saves. And so the major question is just, you know, you have these categories in Roto Leagues this year, which are incredibly um, scarce, right? Um, it's stolen bases. I mean, batting average in a lot of ways is scarce as well, but stolen bases are scarce and saves are scarce as well. And so, um, the question is, you know, how do you, do you, do you, how do you address kind of overpaying them, uh, versus, you know, deciding to punt them? And I kind of covered the punting question, um, with Cody. So it really is, is league dependent. I'll give you an example. Today I was in an, in an OBP league for BARF, and I'll talk more about this on the episode with Bubba. I was in a BARF league, um, and it's OBP. And it's really, really hard to get stolen base guys who also get you OBP outside of like the really, you know, the first round almost, it seems like. And so, um, you know, I thought for a little while, um, just the way my team was coming together, I thought for a little while about... Um, just uh, punting stolen bases in that particular instance and you know going for it but it just it's so um it's so hard it's so hard to do that it's so hard to um it's so hard to punt categories i think and compete um especially the the better the competition is so again it's always going to be league dependent it's always going to be dependent on the settings The thing that I'd say about overpaying for um, stolen bases and saves um, is that if you're doing your valuations right, they should factor in the scarcity of 
those categories in the values that they develop. So like with the valuations I use, they're based on standing gains points. And the scarcer the categories are, you know, the the smaller the gap in um, uh, in standing gains points, essentially. Like, so the scarcer that stolen bases have become, you know, the value that you generate from them is, you generate more value from fewer stolen bases, essentially. And so in a way, those values are, um, are addressing the fact that it is a scarce resource because it takes less to be good. And so what I think is most important in that particular instance is understanding your league. And you can do that by just going back to the last couple years of standings and review those standings and figure out, okay, what, what does it really take? Are there any patterns that I'm noticing in stolen bases or in saves? Like, you know, is there generally for saves, you know, the top two or three teams are competing at a really high level and then there's kind of just a, a, a real scrum in the middle, you know, where like, you know, eight points or five points is separated by like five saves or something like that. And try to look at those standings and figure out, okay, exactly where do I need to be based on the league history in order to avoid that or to finish on the high end of that scrum, but not necessarily competing at the higher end, right? Because you don't have to get a 15 in every category to win, but if you can get, you know, if instead of punting stolen bases, you can figure out a way to get, you know, to be as efficient as possible and get a 10 in stolen bases by finishing at the top end of that scrum, you know, but not necessarily having to have four closers that you have in your lineup, then that that presents you with a really, I think, good opportunity, which is more just being efficient with, you know, the resources, right? Like you don't, like if it's an overall competition, like I often talk about, like, yes, you need to compete in every category. You need to be trying to get whatever it is, the 80th percentile, the 85th percentile, but like an average of the 80th percentile across those categories. In a standalone league, you don't necessarily need to do that. So try to figure out where the efficiency lies, and it's probably going to lie in those scarce resource categories where you can kind of see like, okay, if I get to 90 saves, I'm going to be in really good shape. I'm not going to get a I'm not going to win the category. I may not finish in second or third place, but I'm going to be highly competitive in that category. And then as the season progresses, what you can do is see where you're doing. Maybe your stolen base guys do better than you were expecting them to do, and you're you, now you've got a little bit of clearance towards the end of the season between you and the scrum. Then you have the ability to say, okay, do I want to roster some more stolen base guys to go after the one or two points at the top? Or do I want to fade stolen bases a little bit and, and get the, let the scrum get closer to me, not catch up to me, but, but, but build in other categories? So I think that's the thing that's really important with, with all of these categories is just being really fluid in the way that you think about them. They're not set from the beginning of the season. It feels like that sometimes when we draft things, but they're not set. You really need to be fluid and be able to balance those categories and figure out from an efficiency standpoint where you can maximize your point total. And I think going into drafts with saves and with stolen bases, one thing that you can do is just identify that pocket where it's going to get you not the best, but it's going to be the most efficient use without necessarily detracting as much from the other categories as it might if you were going after those categories really, really hard. So I hope that helps um, uh, answer that question um, 
you know, right there. But again, so your valuation should, uh, should reflect the fact that something is a scarce category and put more value on it, on them for that reason. Um, so like batting average and stolen bases. And then, um, and then also, again, figuring out like what that, that real nice happy medium is between, you know, where you don't want to punt, you want to be competitive, but you don't want to um, necessarily win every single category because maybe you feel like you're compromising the other categories when you go after um, stolen bases or saves. So I hope that's helpful. The next question is from Smart uh, at Smart Fantasy BB. This is Tanner Bell. He's one of the authors of the process, and also um, he has created what I what is my favorite uh, tool of the entire draft season, um, which is the SGP, the automated SGP tool that's available on his website. Um, and I find it should just to be incredibly helpful because he essentially has built a spreadsheet where all you have to do is import. Um, the projection, so like whether that's ATC or Steamer, or as I do, you know, uh, also by his um, projection aggregator, aggregate the, tri- the projections that you trust the most and actually create your own projection in a way that's kind of a meta projection that you can then put into the automated SGP aggregator. And his question is, how does your strand- strategy ch- change in a standalone league um, as compared to um, as it compared to a one that has an overall component like the NFBC. And, and so BARF is a standalone league. And so his question is really um, about, uh, is about that. So how is my strategy changing in this standalone league versus um, an overall? And I'm about to go through a toll booth, folks. And so you may hear uh, the, the window open very quickly right here and then me say hello to somebody, uh, which is part of the On The Road podcast. Hello. Thank you. Great, thank you. There you go. You just heard me say hello to uh, the toll attendant right there as I go through there, putting my wallet uh, back in my pocket, and we are um, on the road again. I'm going to try to speed up past this car as we merge. All right, people, don't worry. I'm being safe. So we are going back. I am on the home stretch. We are through the toll plaza. I am going home. I'm sticking on 80. I'm just driving for like maybe two and a half more hours uh, or two hours or so. And you want to know something, guys? I feel great because I'm on the road with you as the podcast is going. And there is nothing I enjoy more than talking fantasy baseball uh, with the community that listens uh, to the podcast and just in general. So back to Tanner's question uh, at Smart Fantasy BB. So how does my strategy change between an overall and a standalone league? I think the last answer kind of reflects how my strategy changed, which is in which is in an overall competition, my my focus is pretty extreme. Um, I'd even call it orthodox. Um, there's an orthodoxy to it where I want to be competitive in every single category, and so I am trying to bet, find that really hard balance in every single one of the categories i'm not punting any of the categories i'm not even like i'm not trying to win any of the categories necessarily i'm trying to be really balanced across the board in an overall competition knowing that i'm gonna have to my team is gonna change so some of the areas that i thought were a strength or some of the areas that i thought were a weakness are gonna change based on injury and things that happen 
but building a balanced team, both in terms of the players, the way that their profiles lay out, right? So it's trying to stay away from like three category contributors, at least initially, and really trying to get five and four category contributors so that I'm getting uh, my categories from a lot of different players, kind of um, the analogy I often use is kind of balancing my portfolio. So I'm doing that both from a, 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 um, a category standpoint, but also even within each of the players so that um, I'm not, you know, I don't want to be at like 100% in terms of home runs. Um, you know, like I don't want to be winning home runs necessarily because I'm trying to recognize that it's really hard to build a team that wins in home runs while also competing in those other categories. So in an overall competition, you've all heard me say it a lot, but that's essentially what I'm trying to do. Uh, in a standalone league, I think I'm much more flexible when the draft comes. And so with the barf draft, so heading into the barf draft, and I'm going to, me and Bubba, and actually we're going to be joined by Sammy Reed. It should be a really fun show um, on Monday, on Sunday night. So, you know, with that, um, uh, in, heading into the league, I knew it was an OBP league and it was a quality starts league, five by five. And so in knowing that, I knew, you know, number one, that there was going to be a lot of differences in valuations, right? Because a lot of people, we don't necessarily rely on ADP, but you look at ADP as kind of a market guide, right? It's a market of telling you where you should go. But in an OBP draft, there isn't a very good resource that shows you what that is, right? And so I generated valuations using the auction calculator at Fangraphs, which isn't ideal, but it's very hard to find, you know, OBP and quality starts information. It's really hard to find projections for quality starts. And so what I did is I used that and then I just generated a general list just to give me a sense of the valuation and how they change, right? And then I knew looking at that list that it was going to be very different from a, a batting average league and that I was maybe going to be able to uh, not necessarily exploit because it's a sh very sharp room, but for the folks who didn't generate you know, their own um, uh, projections or who may not have factored as heavily into the equation that it's uh, OBP and that it's quality starts, um, you know, they, they might have a different list of players from me and their, their list may be more based on who the general public thinks of as a really good fantasy player um, and not necessarily focused as, as staunchly on you know, what the categories were going to be helpful. And one of the things that I also realized just in doing that is that it's really, really hard, even more so I think than average, to find guys that are good at OBP and speed. That is something that is very, very difficult to do. Um, just because they're, you know, like your guys who have speed are often like more kind of contact oriented hitters. They're going to be challenged a lot more by pitchers. So they're going to, they're not going to have as much of an opportunity to walk. And it just doesn't seem to be a skill set, you know, that, that exists that frequently, right? The Tommy Fams of the world, the guys who are going to get you 20 stolen bases and, you know, a 350 plus OBP just don't exist outside of the first round. So I actually considered punting stolen bases because just looking at the guys who I was going to be able to get, I felt really good about my ability to get guys who were going to be really good at OBP, who were going to get be really good at runs, and who were going to be really good at RBIs and home runs. Getting those four categories, I find, especially with the way that I build my drafts, that that was going to be something that was going to be I was going to be able to do. And so what I did is I took a look at the standings from last year in BARF because that's the only league I've been in there. 
And I looked for the 80th percentile just to kind of get a sense of what that might look like. But then I also tried to look for some trends in the different categories. And some things that I noticed were like in saves and in stolen bases, you know, there's kind of the guys who are, who are neck and neck for winning it. And then there's like a little bit of a dip and then there's kind of the scrum that's battling it out for it, right? Around kind of between like maybe like 90 and 100 stolen bases is where you might go up and down like five points, you know, with a few, a few stolen bases. And so what I said is you want to know something early on in the draft, I'm going to target these four category studs. Um, and I got some of them like your Kyle Schwarbers, your Jorge Soler's, guys like that who are going to contribute in everything except for stolen bases. So I was going to go after guys like that and I was just going to kind of let speed come to me, right? Because I knew I didn't have to compete in the, I didn't even need to get a 12 in speed, right? If I get like a, an 8 to a 10 in speed, I feel pretty decent about where my team is going to be and I'm going to focus on, you know, kind of those other categories. And so that is a little bit of how it differentiates. In the same way, um, in, you know, an overall competition in the, in the pitching categories, I also need to be competing in a similar way. But what I did is in looking at that, number one is quality starts are harder to get than wins. Um, when you look at quality starts and the way that they are, like the curve of them, there's your elite guys who get a ton of them, and then it's just like, it's all mediocrity. And so I knew I was going to do my, my 2A strategy to start, just looking at kind of how the four category contributors fell, um, and they, are, they would also be underrated maybe a little bit because they would be higher up in my ADP versus where they might be if you weren't as focused on OD, OBP. And so in that particular instance, like, you know, what I wanted to do was um, I, uh, saves would be important. It's a daily league, so I could kind of move guys in and out of the lineup. So, um, and it's also short benches, only five benches. So I knew that there was going to be a lot of it's 14-team league as well, so there'd be some decent pitching available on the waiver wire. So I was going to take some shots in the dark towards the end, but understand that I could be screaming those last guys after my solid foundation and really building in some relief pitcher strength because of the daily league. I can kind of move them in and out and kind of maximize their value and even some middle relief guys. And so the way that I approach this league is, again, understanding the league settings and how I might be able to take advantage of them. But again, similar to what I talked about before, like really having a focus on efficiency and not necessarily being so preoccupied as much with balance as understanding that in this particular league, I can be a 15 in OBP or I could be a 15 in home runs or, or a 14, I guess, or like higher up there in those categories and maybe a little less in speed, but recognizing that I felt pretty good about my ability to build that staff uh, and, to, and to create competitive pitching while also uh, being able to um, compete in those other four categories. And so I hope I explained that well, but essentially like in a standalone league, it's really about understanding how your league might differentiate um, or might be different or what it has done historically um, and finding, finding out the best route within the draft to maximize your points and as opposed to being balanced across the board in all of them um, because you don't necessarily need to do that in a standalone league as compared to a league that is going to have, have an overall. So I hope that was um, I hope that was helpful in how I kind of do it. I guess the, the the general way to frame that might be 
I feel like I, I'm more flexible in draft or I'm more, I'm more, I let the draft come to me a little bit more. I focus a little bit more on value as opposed to the categories. Um, I always pay attention. I'm, I'm very cognizant of team construction, but I'm really focusing in on more value early on and letting that dictate how the rest of my draft falls into place. And in this particular situation, like I was so heavy on OBP early on, I could take some low OBP steals guys like a Tim Anderson, for instance, and not be so worried about OBP because even after taking a Tim Anderson and a, and a couple a couple other guys who are maybe lower down, uh, who are low in OBP, I was still able to have, you know, a high OBP. Um, so I hope that um, I hope that right there was a helpful answer um, for you, um, Smart Fantasy uh, BB. The next one is Jayhawk Chalk. It's projecting holds, and do you have any holds targets? Um, so uh, I don't really project holds. I'm not sure who projects holds. What I would suggest is actually going to um, to the Fangraphs auction calculator. My guess is they have a ton of categories, so they probably have holds. But really what you wanna be doing if you have a holds league is looking at focusing primarily on skill, right? You really wanna be looking at, okay, who consistently, consistently without regard for um, you know, like their, the leverage that they're pitching in, who has really, really good skills? Which, which team, who is also going to be on a winning team? And so who's going to be able to maximize that? And I think in that particular instance, it's really like go on fan graphs and look at, um, uh, look at you know, go to the pellet discipline metric and really look at like who has a really high swinging strike rate among relievers, who has a really high K minus walk rate, um, who... Like those are really the, the true skill skill pieces, you know, who has a really high K rate, right? Who has been consistently good over the last couple of years who may not have access, right? So a guy like a Nick Anderson on the Rays, even though Emilio Pagan got traded today, which was actually mid-draft and which was a little bit of a bummer because like um, Eno had drafted Emilio Pagan earlier today and literally like 10 rounds later finds out that Emilio Pagan has been traded and... You know, that's a really hard thing to have happen, especially in a deeper league like a 14-team league. And all the other closures were already off the board by the time that it happened. So um, so with holds, I mean, you know, I think it's just a matter of focusing on the skill and, and teams that are going to be uh, really good. And so, like, one team that I'd go to is the Rays. The Rays have, like, five or six guys who have elite skills in that bullpen who are probably going to have access to holds because they're going to be a really good team. So... I'd go after a lot of those guys, like a Colin Posh, a Nick Anderson, an Andrew Kittredge, an Oliver Drake. Guys like that, I think, could be really, really valuable. Similarly, looking at guys who are lefty specialists. Obviously, that's not going to be as big of a skill this year because of the changes to um, you know guys having to face three hitters. But it, you know, the new rules don't stop somebody from you know bringing in a lefty to face. Uh, you know, the last guy in, in, in an inning um, or something of that nature. So that might be an opportunity, a little bit less so this year. But really, you just want to be hyper-focused on skill. And so what you could even do is look at uh, the steamer projections and just look at guys, uh, sort by, you could even sort by saves, 
and then eliminate the guys who have access to saves if it's not a saves plus hold leagues. And then take a look at the next best relievers when it comes to ERA and whip and strikeout rate for projections. So that's kind of how I would handle it. I would use those tools that are available to us on Fangraphs to really identify who the high-skilled guys are, use K-minus walk rate, use swinging strike rate, use strikeout rate, and then eliminate the guys who have access to saves and figure out who's there. And then you just want to do a, like figure out who's going later in drafts or who may, who may not have you know, as much helium in that, in that realm or who might not be as well-known but who might have um, access to that. There's a lot of every single year really, really highly skilled holds guys, and I would wait until the very end of drafts to get them because I think you can get good ones late, and I think you can also pick them up pretty quickly once you see and figure out like what the, what the kind of leverage rules are with uh, the different guys. So that would be my suggestion for um, a holds league. A little bit of a short answer, but I hope that was... Um, I hope that was helpful for you right there. The next one is from Telestar7, um, and the question is, compare Lamette, Gallon, Freed, Boyd, and Manaya. So I'm going to do my best to remember all of these, and I'll just share like a little bit briefly about how I feel about each one of them, and you can kind of go off that. Again, I am driving, so I don't have access to all the stats. I didn't have an opportunity to really like drill down on these guys beforehand, so I'm really going on. You know, the research that I've done before and what's stuck in my head. So with the first one, Denelson Lamette. I don't think I'm as high on Lamette as other people. I think my concerns with Lamette is, number one, is that he really only has two pitches. Um, you know, he's got the slider, which he throws a ton, and the fastball. And it looked really, really good early on last year. Um, but he hasn't shown over an extended period of time that he can be consistent with those two pitches without getting hit really, really hard. So I think he's going to strike out a decent amount of guys, but he could be kind of a Chris Archer might be a good example. Now, Baseball Savant has him throwing some other pitches like a curveball and a changeup, I think. But I was listening to Eno Eno Saris's overview of the pitchers, and I liked what he was talking about, which is the fact that his command is so bad that it may just be that he, he, he can't, there's not a lot of repeatability, if you will, uh, of, of his slider. And so it shows up differently, you know, because there's such a lack of consistency in the way that he's able to throw that. Uh, I hope I'm, I'm, I'm framing that in the, in the same way. I think that's what I heard from what Eno was saying. But I like the way that he talked about that. And he's never really shown an ability to have even good control, let alone command. And that's normally one of the last things that comes in... Um, after Tommy John surgery and while his control improved last year and I think that's one of the reasons why he looks really good in a lot of ways uh, I'm not really sure that I've seen it for long enough or consistent enough um, to believe it and so with where he's going in drafts right now I'm not necessarily on him but I do think that there is a lot of upside right there Uh, a guy that I do like that's going there is Max Fried uh, I like Max Reed a lot. Number one, his curveball is a solid pitch, uh, 15% swinging strike rate, generates really poor um, uh, batted ball quality. His fastball's all right. He throws both a four-seamer and a sinker. Um, they're okay pitches, not great. But then he started throwing a slider a lot more in September um, in, tor- in the second half, just more generally. And that was a really good pitch for him. So it gives him two pitches that have 15% swinging strike rate or higher, a decent fastball, 
And he got unlucky last year with quality of contact, but he was really good at limiting barrels, which are sticky year to year. And so I really like that fact about Freed. So I think from a contact management perspective, he's solid. We saw increases in his swinging strike rate, in his O swing as he started to throw the slider more. And I think that's really, really good. And so I think he's going to be very solid. He's on a good Braves team. He should have access to wins, so I feel good about that. Um, and I also think that if he can get something like, it's not something that you can plan, but if he can get a little uptick in velo uh, this year, that could really play up the curveball and the slider and make him an even better pitcher. So I think he's got a pretty solid floor, and then I think the ceiling uh, is even higher given the two uh, breaking pitches that he throws uh, and the possibility of that fastball. Uh, the next guy up there is Zach Gallen. Uh, Gallon is a little bit of an interesting case to me. I think he's got a lot of what you're going to need for a really good pitcher. The fastball is decent, not great, but then he's got the changeup, which is really nasty, 20% plus swinging strike rate. And then I think it's either a, it's a curve or a slider or both that he has um, that are pretty solid. But I think he's got really good stuff. I think my concern with him, and it's always a big, it's more and more a concern for me, is just... Um, uh, is the walks. Uh, his control metrics weren't great. Uh, the walks were a little bit of an issue over the course of the year. And I just worry about walks because there's a lot of... the in, Walks can just have a, a huge impact, right? The more walks you throw, the more extended your innings are, the more guys are on base. So if you give up home runs, you know, the more guys, the likelihood it is that somebody's going to be on base... You're probably going to have to throw more pitches, so the likelihood that you can get like a win or a quality start, that you're not going to be more heavily reliant on the bullpen is higher. And so for all those reasons, like I like Gallon, um, but again, like I don't necessarily love him and he hasn't been somebody who I've been targeting. Uh, Freed is the guy within this group that I have really uh, been targeting. Um, the other one is Manaya. Uh, I'm totally off of Manaya, given that he's going around these guys. Um, his strikeout rate was way higher than it should have been just based on his uh, called plus swinging strike rate and his swinging strike rate last year. He was definitely better, but he's much more of a to-contact guy, and I just don't dig that. Obviously, the, the best he's got the best place to really be in that type of situation, um, being with uh, the, the A's, like pitching in that park, um, and also uh, with that defense behind him. Uh, that's a really, really good place to be. So it's not that I think he's absolutely terrible, but he just gives up a lot of contact. Um, he's 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 kind of more reliant on luck. The strikeouts aren't necessarily going to be there, and I think that's what a lot of the other guys who are going in this round in this um, area um, uh, are. You know what they can get you is strikeouts, um, and that's not necessarily what he's going to be able to get you. And so I think he's got that lowest ceiling and probably the lowest floor two of this group, although Lamette's floor um, is actually uh, pretty darn um, low. So that's like, kind of what I would say about, um, about those guys. Um, and then uh, Boyd is a guy who, I, uh, who I've been targeting a lot too. Um, if I miss out on Boyd in maybe the 130 to 140 range, I've been going after Boyd... Um, around pick 160 to 180 depending on like whether he falls or not the thing that I like about Boyd uh, a lot is number one like he, he's clearly a thinker 
Like, you know, he goes to driveline. He went to driveline last year. The slider was really good. He was working the fastball high in the zone. So that's really, really good. The challenge is that he only really has two pitches that he trusts, the fastball and the slider. And as a result, he has quality of contact um, problems. But if you look at a lot of the metrics, it looks like he got unlucky last year um, based on the expected WOBA, um, you know, and just, um, you know, generally like that metric and just the home run per fly ball rate and the home runs per nine were just so, 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 so high. But the good thing about Boyd is that he doesn't really walk, guys. He had a super low walk rate last year. Um, When you look at his CSW, his called plus swinging strike rate, it was really high as well. Um, And the thing that I like about Boyd, too, is I feel like I can see where he can take the next step. His velo isn't super high, so if he's able to add a a tick of velo working at driveline or just, like, you know, doing all of the kind of interesting stuff that he's trying to do to get the most out of his body and the most out of his pitches... You know, then I can see him really taking another step forward, especially in the quality of contact that he gives up. Um, when you look at his K minus walk rate, it was pretty elite last year. Uh, when you look at his CSW minus uh, ball percentage, which was something that I looked at um, over uh, like a few weeks ago, he was actually one of the league leaders um, in that, which I really like. Uh, he's really high in CSW. And then he also has two pitches that have been okay to good in different seasons but just not together with the fastball high in the zone and the slider and that's his change up in his curve and it seems like he's working on that right now and so for that reason um you know I I like Boyd a lot so if I were to rank them I would probably rank them uh Freed uh Freed Boyd Gallon Lamette Manaya would probably be the way that I rank them. Um, you know, I think Gallon, 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 Free, Gallon and Freed are. I don't know. It's kind of tough. Maybe I'd have Gallon and Freed there at the top, um, followed by Boyd and Lamette because they're fairly similar. Maybe that's a fair way to do it with Manaya as the last one. But that I think is kind of how I would probably um, how I would probably uh, how I would probably break it down. So I, I hope that is, uh, that is helpful um, uh, right there uh, for uh, an answer. Um, the next question was, um, outside the top 10, who are your starting pitcher targets and your save targets? Um, and so, uh, so generally, outside of like the top 10 to 15, so out, outside of my pocket aces strategy, like what I'm, what I'm uh, looking at is really the guys that I've generally been getting that I target kind of in the middle rounds are Kyle Hendricks. Because with my two aces, theoretically, I'm really good on starting pitching and volume. And so having the uh, ratio support or reinforcement from Hendricks gives me a lot more flexibility later on in drafts to go after guys like maybe a Dylan Bundy who are higher strikeout guys who have a little bit of ratio issues. So Kyle Hendricks is a guy I target. Uh, Lance Lynn is a guy that I'm targeting there. Uh, just based on his, you know, his strikeout rate, his fastball velo being up um, was really, really nice there. I mentioned Max Fried in the last question and Matthew Boyd. Those have been the guys that I've been getting. I would also look at Carlos Carrasco. Um, outside of DCs, DCs, I think it's harder to go after some of the starting pitching early, um, you know, after your two aces. But in a traditional draft where you're going to have fab, 
Like I'll probably go after Carrasco as an SP3, maybe in, in one draft, one or two drafts, um, depending on how things fall and how good I feel about my starting pitcher too. So those are kind of the guys that I'm really going after there. The next level are kind of guys that I would say I'd call like mediocre but solid. And those are guys like um, Joe Musgrove, um, Cole Hamels, Miles My- Mikolas. And these are guys who are kind of like been fairly consistent. I'm not worrying about them absolutely blowing up. Um, my ratios, uh, they're just overall pretty solid. And at least for Mikolas and Musgrove, you know, they're going to have solid whips because they don't walk guys and... Um, or Mikolas and Hamels, and they, they should have access to some wins, you know, because of, um, you know, being on the Braves and being on the Cardinals. So that's kind of that. And then the final layer is kind of your guys who I think are going late in drafts who have higher upside. So those are guys like, you know, a Dylan Bundy, an Austin Voth, a Tyler Beattie, um, a Sandy Alcantara, you know, just guys who, um, who I feel like are cheap and I'm, I'm taking them and if they struggle I can drop them but if they're good um, I feel like there's I have reason to believe they might be able to take the next level if something goes right right they're a little bit of lottery tickets but they're educated lottery tickets is how I would say it so um, that's kind of how I um, look at the starting pitchers uh, with saves um, I'm generally out on like a lot of the higher guys. Today I took my highest ranked closer and that was actually Kenley Jansen. Uh, I think Kenley Jansen is being underrated. He's not the Kenley Jansen of old, but when you look at him, like go look at his stat cast page. He is among the league leaders in expected WOBA, in um, uh, all, like everything except for, um, I want to say barrel percentage maybe. That might be the one thing that he's not... No, fastball velocity. That's the one thing that he's not elite at. He was one of the best pitchers in terms of limiting contact, but he got really unlucky last year, it appears. He has a 16% swinging strike rate, you know, a 24%, I think, um, K-minus walk rate. So it's not that he's bad. He's just not the Kenley of old. But there's reason to believe that he still has a lot in the tank, and he's going to get a ton of saves with the Dodgers. So I went after him. The other guys I like who I think are a little undervalued, Edwin Diaz is a guy that I really like if I'm going to take a closer higher up just because I think he's primed for a bounce back. The skills are absolutely elite. I think last year was just kind of one of those worst-case scenario years, if you will. Um, and then, but generally the where, where I'm going to be shopping is in kind of the, the, the closer two area. And the guys I like there are, um, I like Alex Colomay. Uh, just because I think he's got a solid, he's been very consistent for four or five years now. He's got the job with the White Sox. And, you know, he's, he's struggled off and on, but if you look at him, he's never had an ERA, I think, like over 3.5, and he's never had a whip over 3.25 or 1.25. And so he's all around solid. He has access to saves right now, and he's going to be on a pretty good team against some pretty poor competition in the AL Central. So. Kind of like uh, like him. I like Hansel Robles. He was really good end of season. He increased his changeup percentage and just uh, pitched really, really well down the, start, the stretch. So I like him. I think he's kind of got the job, and I, I think he's really good. I like Jose Leclerc. He got very unlucky last year. 
Um, he and Edwin Diaz actually had the same expected WOBA last year, which was like 267 or something like that. He walks a decent amount of guys, but he strikes out a lot of guys, and he does a pretty good job of limiting contact against, so he's solid. I also like some guys going later on. I like Mark Melanson a lot. Um, he is, um, you know, he should have access to saves right now. That The Braves have been saying that. Um, and the Braves should be good, and he's been okay. You know, he's been okay the last few years. He's not a dominant closer, but he's been fine. And that leaves Will Smith for the high leverage situations. I also like a guy like Ian Kennedy, um, you know, who I think is a, is a really good closer. Uh, so, or like he was good last year, and he's got um, some um, he's got some uh, some leash to him. And so, I think for that reason, like I think he's a, he's a really good um, you know he's a, he's a decent option. And then just like speculating on some of those late guys. You know, your Matt McGill's, your Brandon Kinsler's, your Wade Davis's, because it looks like he's going to be the closer in Colorado. The guys who you, who you, you know, you get them and you plug them in at the beginning of the season and you just see how things go. Maybe you catch lightning in a bottle um, and they do more than, they do better than somebody's expected or, you know, uh, you can always get lucky and then you just ditch them if they, if they don't. So uh, those are some examples of guys that I'm kind of into. Those are the um, guys that I've been getting a lot. I had been getting like a decent amount of Emilio Pagan, which is unfortunate given the trade. Um, but you know, uh, things things happen, and and that uh, that certainly happened. Um, so uh, that's something. Uh, all right. Uh, the next question is from Totemus, um, or actually, uh, JD uh, Homert asks uh, rounds you'd target pitching and hitting. Uh, so I won't go too in depth in this. Uh, people know this from my pocket aces strategy, but generally speaking, I think you should target starting pitching early in the first few rounds, and then later on, um, and kind of miss rounds like two through eight at least, like two through ten, or not two, um, like four or five through like ten. Um, and then focus on some high upside guys who are going later on. Um, you know, those guys are most likely to return uh, value for you based on the research that I've seen. Um, and I just think hitting is very deep this year and starting pitching is pretty top heavy. So that's how I'd kind of divvy it up. But if you're interested in my overall kind of approach uh, to that, you can re- you can listen to episode 107. Uh, one of my last on-the-road podcasts where I kind of went in depth in, in terms of what my pocket aces strategy is. So I target them there, um, closers late, and then I target hitting. Uh, I try to go real deep on hitting, um, you know, by getting a ton of guys in a row after I've targeted pitching uh, in the early rounds. But it really depends on what your draft is. Like, that's for 15-teamers. Even in 12-teamers, I've found myself doing that. But that's also with an overall competition, you know, um, getting a getting a you know a, a top end ace and then a bottom end ace is also a very viable strategy. So it all just depends on the league settings. Like if you're in a points leagues, I know starting pitchers are also super valuable. So that's just something to think about. Um, but you know, you can, there's a lot of different ways to win. But that's my preferred method: is targeting starting pitching early and then later uh, hitting in the middle rounds and and going real deep on it. And then closers later on, like kind of shopping from that kind of late tail end of those um, uh, of those closures right there. So um, hope that was um, helpful. 
The next uh, question is from uh, Totemus. Uh, I think it's Totemus Opolis. I don't know. I can't see it right now. Um, but Todd, you know, you know who you are. Um, and his question is, is a good one. It's like, there's so much stuff out there, right? There's like the valuations, there's ADP, there's all the advanced metrics, there's all the projections, there's everything. There's all these different things. So how do you go about staying simple and creating your rankings? So my suggestion would be this for creating rankings would be to um, find projection systems that you like, um, uh, generate uh, a valuation for those. You could use the auction calculator on Fangraphs, you could use the automated SGP tool, you could generate your own, whatever you do, but generate a dollar valuation for those. And then, and then line them up. And then I think what you do to layer over that is that is your initial rankings. And then you go through each one and you just say, ah, I kind of disagree on this guy because of this reason and bump him up. Or I'm not as high as this guy on the projections because I think they're missing this and then bump him down. So use the projections as a guide, um, but then also, um, but then use the advanced metrics that may not be integrated like the StatCast metrics. Use those to figure out like, where you've gone, like where you might agree or disagree with the projections um, in creating that. And then what you want to do is compare your ranking list, right, uh, against uh, ADP and just see where there's a difference there, where there may be value, um, you know, where a guy, you know, you may think that he's more valuable and the market doesn't. And so that's a value opportunity and figure out where you, where you want to get him. But like, if you don't want to even focus on any of those things, by the way, guys, it's very windy outside. It is really windy right now. Um, I don't know if you can hear it, but it's windy. So I got, I got both my hands on the steering wheel. Not that I would, would, wouldn't do that, um, but I would definitely do that. But like, and then another thing to do is just like, don't be too smart. Like, go to Fantasy Pros and take a look at what their uh, consensus rankings are, you know, for whatever your league is, and start out with those. That's totally fine, too. And obviously, that's market-based. And what you're going to just have to figure out is where do you differentiate yourself from the market? And you don't want to, like, follow ADP like like it's, it's the be-all, end-all, but the market does a pretty good job of valuing guys. Like, you'll find, especially as we get to March, that there's fewer and fewer clear values in the player pool, uh, at least early on, I think, um, you know, and so, and so, you know, don't, don't make things too complicated. If you, and also like, if you're not somebody who likes doing the deep research, the deep advanced metrics, like then don't, you know, like that's what projections are, are helpful for. Like they're, they're good at taking all of these different inputs and turning them into a fairly accurate representation of what likely outcome might be. So, you know, again, like use that or else find an analyst that you really trust and use their rankings as an initial jumping off point and then go through it and figure out where you may, um, you may differ from them. So I hope that's hope, uh, helpful, uh, Todd. Um, you know, I just think that, that, that each one of those things has something different but there's a lot of different resources that will give you a really good sense of where people should be ranked in different, um, 
you know, in different formats. And I would use those um, to, to kind of set a baseline and then do your own research to figure out or as you read different guys, jot down little notes about why a guy might be better or worse than the projection um, that you anticipated. So um, anyways, I hope, that, I hope that's a helpful answer to you right there. I know it can be a lot. And one thing I think that's also really important is like, is, is among the advanced metrics, like focus on things that are sticky. Focus on things that are uh, correlate from year to year, you know, not things that are descriptive because what you want to be doing, especially right now, is figuring out what are the skills that are most likely to be repeated that the person has already shown um, and rely on those much more so than some of the descriptive stats that are all over the place, right? And a good example of that is using barrel rate instead of expected WOBA. Expected WOBA is not sticky year to year. Barrel rate is sticky year to year. Um, using things like swinging strike rate, which are sticky year to year, you know, as opposed to, I don't know, some other strikeout metric that isn't sticky year to year. So those would be some of my, um, some of my suggestions right there. Um, hope that that is um, helpful for you. All right, the next one is from J.D. Homert, and it is head-to-head categories for 10-team strategy. Um, uh, and then the last piece of it is... Um, oh, so the, he, he says that he likes to, in his 10-team head-to-head strategy, he likes to target Turner, Lindor, and Soto um, kind of in the, in the first couple rounds. That's how he likes to start it out. Um, I will be honest with you. I do not play a ton of head-to-head. Um, I just can't, uh, I just can't handle investing a full year into building a squad and then having it come down to a one week or two week matchup to figure out whether I actually won or not. I just, I can't do it. But I know head to head is super popular and it's a lot of fun because, you know, you get to play against guys every week and um, it keeps you really uh, engaged. So anyways, I'll, I'll preface it with that. But what is key is consistency, right? Um, in uh, some of these categories. And so the thing that I like about the guys that you mentioned is that they are pretty consistent contributors. Like they've got really high, uh, they've got relatively high contact rates. They make a lot of contact. Um, They put the ball in play a lot. They're pretty consistent on a week-to-week basis. So yes, I don't mind starting that way at all. Um, And obviously what I think you should do generally, um, the strategy that I would employ is taking a balanced approach early on so as you build your team uh, out early on, uh, really build, trying to build as balanced of a team as you possibly can. And then as, as the playoffs approach and you, try, you start to get a better sense of how your teams, what your team's strengths and weaknesses are, is as you approach the playoffs to really reinforce your, your strengths and kind of uh, punt your weaknesses in the sense that you only have to beat your opponent by one point um, in the um, uh, in your playoff and you're in in the playoffs and you win and so if you can create a team in the playoffs that is strong enough in enough categories where you feel pretty confident that you can um, outperform the other teams by one then strengthen in those categories and kind of um, and don't be afraid to let go of some categories because you don't want to, you want to subject yourself to as little variance as possible. And so if you can create um, a team 
uh, that that is is strong enough in those categories um, that you're going to be one better than every other team, then that that would be kind of the strategy that I'd employ. Again, coming from somebody who uh, doesn't necessarily play um, a lot of uh, of head to head. The one thing that I would say about that generally is that the guys that you mentioned, the the Lindors and the Turner, you know, they're great because they provide stolen bases in addition to, you know, all the other great stuff that they provide, like power and decent batting average and, um, you know, different and, and really good counting stats. I think what you want to stay clear of is the guys who. Um, you know, who only provide you with stolen bases because st- stolen bases among all the categories are probably the most fickle, you know, within a, within a team from week to week. And so even with a really strong foundation in stolen bases, it can be a little bit, um, you know, it can be hard to know exactly when those stolen bases are going to come. And it may even be u- more useful, especially if you, you mentioned like you're in a 10-team league like if you're in a 10 team league it's probably a lot easier to identify guys who have a little bit of speed who may be coming upon some good matchups some good stolen base matchups um so paying attention to that and being able to shift those guys in as your kind of stolen base guys um if you can i also think it's really important to have you know like strong uh foundation like you know having a strong foundation so having a couple really good starting pitchers that give you consistently good ratios um, and solid Ks. And that way you can kind of feel better about streaming week to week. And then you can have kind of those those um, better ratio middle relief type pitchers that you can also uh, kind of move in there. Um, and so I think for that, those are some of the things that I would think about with a 10-teamer. And just understanding with a 10-teamer that the player pool is going to be a lot deeper. And so the things that are really going to um, separate people, like the counting stats aren't going to separate people as much as, say, the batting average or the stolen bases. And so that's what's going to give people, like, make people really, really interesting. I think the overall, like, strategic question is, do you go for a guy like a, you know, like a Lindor or a, um, you know, or a Turner um, who don't have as high of a batting average and the stolen bases aren't going to be as consistent? Do you go for them over a guy like a Freddie Freeman, who is extremely consistent, you know, throughout the year, who's going to provide you with the counting stats, the home runs, and the really solid batting average on a fairly regular basis? Like, I think that's the major question is, is which one of that type of profile do you pursue? I think what you want to steer clear of is like your your Malik Smith stolen base only type guys can you because you can really lose your edge in other categories when you do something like that um and like uh you know your streamers for pitchers should be pretty good in a 10 team league depending on how deep the bench is um but um you know really just working those matchups in that particular instance getting those two start guys in there so that your K's are up things of that nature but um you know i'm not an expert in head-to-head by any stretch of the imagination so i'll kind of stop there but those are some of the things that i would um i personally would kind of focus on in a 10 team head-to-head um but those of you who play head-to-head let me know if i've messed that up and and what what a strategy would be that you would you would suggest that um uh, people employ um so the next question is late round obp ops targets um, 
like your um, this is like uh, this the, what he said from last year is like your your Jake Bowers and Max Kepler's from last year. So it depends on what late round is for you, to be honest with you, because like even last year, Max Kepler was going around uh, pick 200. And so going around pick 200, like, um, you know, that's that could be considered late, but maybe not. Um, but some guys that, that like, I think have increased value who may drop just because they're not as valued because of the profile would be like a, an Edwin Encarnacion. Like, he is a top 100 guy easy in, um, in an OBP league, but he's probably going to fall a little ways just because he's older and because, you know, maybe the people that you're playing with are more used to kind of like um, ADPs based on batting average. So he would be one example. Um, Adam Eaton is a really good guy that I like a lot. You know, he's very solid OBP and in runs. He's not going to destroy you in home runs. He'll probably hit 15, but then he's also going to get you 15 stolen bases, but the run should be elite. Lorenzo Cain is another guy who, you know, was really unlucky last year in terms of his balls in play based on everything I've seen, and he's got speed, he's got OBP, he walks a decent amount, uh, should be back in the leadoff spot if everything's okay with him. So those are a couple examples um, of guys but some deeper, deeper guys would be um, guys like, uh, you, know, um, you know, in deeper leagues like a Steven Souza who just signed with the, with the Cubs. He's got a lot more value in OBP because his batting average is low, but he walks a decent amount. Um, uh, Jacoby Jones is a late flyer that I like a lot um, because his O swing improved dramatically towards the end of last season and the skills did overall. So that would be another guy. Um, you know, that I might look at for kind of like a later round guy in like a deeper 14-15 team league. That's one of the guys um, that I went after here. Brandon Nimmo of the Mets is another guy. I think more valuable than that is really what I would do is, again, run the auction calculator or generate your values based on OBP and then see the guys who, you know, feel like they're undervalued. Um, and then another thing to do is just go on Fangraphs and search by O-Swing, which is chase rate, which is a really good proxy for walk rate. I think that's a really great way to identify guys that have really good plate discipline um, and, who, and who, who could pop and use that as kind of like a starting place to, to do a deeper dive on some of the guys who kind of jump out at you as having really good plate discipline um, metrics and, and maybe there's a little bit more um, that they can provide uh, at, a, at, a, at a later point in time. So those are some of the guys that I would say are good OBP, OPS targets. But again, like run the valuations, the auction calculators right there on Fangraphs. You can generate them using those metrics. Um, and then again, using some of these proxies for walk rate or even look search based on walk rate and then dig in to see who's maybe going a little bit later. Why are they going later? What might the upside potential um, be for them. So those would be some things that I might um, that I might suggest for targeting those OBP um, and OPS uh, guys um, later on. Because I do think it's much more helpful to figure out some tools and some resources you can use that can help you identify those guys than giving you like a specific example of some guys who may um, who may be that guy uh, this year. I hope that is uh, I hope that's helpful right there. Um, all right, um, uh, pockets in drafts and specific positions 
and skills. So this question is really about like where in drafts do you find certain skills? Um, where do you find certain positions that you really like? So let's start with um, positions and I'll go position by position. For catchers, the place that I really like to get catchers is early on, <laughs> JT Real Muto. Um, but, um, you know, I don't mind getting Real Muto or even uh, Gary Sanchez. You know, I don't mind getting those guys early on um, because I do think that they provide uh, a decent amount of value. Um, I think there is a nice little pocket around like 150, uh, pick 150 in ADP to be targeting the group of like mediocre catchers uh, who are in kind of like that um, like 120 to 150 range, just kind of going after the guy who slips a little bit there. And then I also think there's a nice little pocket around 200 to 220 where you have guys like uh, Yadier Molina and Jorge Alfaro, um, you know, guys like that who I think are, are, are pretty, pretty solid in that range. So that's what I'd say for catcher. Um, first base, I would say um, there's a really nice pocket like between maybe pick 60 and pick 120 where you're going to get guys like Jose Abreu um, and Matt Olson and Yuli Gurriel uh, and Reese Hoskins. Edwin Encarnacion goes a little bit later. Carlos Santana goes a little bit later. So I feel like there's some options there a little bit late. For second baseman, it's all early on. Like it's all like kind of 40 to 60, I think, is where most of the really good second basemen are going. But I really like like the DJ LeMahieu, um, Jeff McNeil and average leagues kind of pocket that happens right there. Um, but it definitely thins out uh, pretty quick there. Shortstop, there's pockets all over the place. The speed guys generally are higher up. But there's a really nice between like 90 and like 130. There's like Tim Anderson and Elvis Andrews and Tim, uh, did I, I already said Tim Anderson, Elvis Andrews, who am I missing? Ahmed Rosario, Jorge Polanco types, um, which are really good right there. Um, I also think with third base, third base is pretty good up until like about like pick 120. Then it shallows out for a little while, and then there are some pretty decent options, I think, um, later on in the draft. Um, outfield is pretty deep, I think, overall um, as you go through it. But generally speaking, like, the scarcer the category, the, the earlier it dries up. So batting average and stolen bases dry up um, earliest. Um, like generally before pick 130 for stolen bases is what I would recommend. But again, there's guys late. And then the same for batting average. Um, you know, so there's pockets. And I think the, que the, the key is just being familiar with those pockets and recognizing where they exist. Um, and then being able to figure out, like, which guy is the best guy in a similar value throughout the draft to get, because, you know, based on the categories that he can provide because you know where those, those pockets exist, you know, kind of later on. But it's just they kind of thin out as the, the draft goes forward. So, you know, like later on in outfield, like there's a really nice like Adam Eaton and Lorenzo Cain kind of round pick 180 that are going right there. who are kind of similar guys, but, um, you know, it can thin out a little bit quicker. I'd be better at answering this question if I had like the ADP in front of me, but I don't really have that in front of me right now. 
So I hope this is a helpful answer to that to that question. But I think it's a really good way to look at things and to think about like kind of hot spots and where they exist. And I think just by looking at the ADP, like go to the NFBC ADP and see where guys are grouped together. Like just search by um, search by position and see where there's bunches of guys and where they disappear. And then what are the the traits that those guys have? What are the what are the categories that they're providing? And so what does that mean for what might be available later? Because that's really the give and take that you're that you're having, right? So like if you're drafting early early on and you're like, oh, I'm gonna get my Manny Machado for my shortstop. Well, knowing that at middle infield, you know, you're getting a guy who in middle infield who doesn't have a ton of speed, knowing that you have like a Tim Anderson and Ahmed Rosario and an Elvis Andrews later on that makes like a pretty decent pair to be your middle infielder with Manny Machado, that's helpful to know because it allows you to get a guy like Machado knowing that something's later there. But what you can't do is then find out that you have another, you know, weakness that goes about the same place and then you don't end up getting, you know, filling in what you needed there. So it's all a give and take. It's really hard to explain like, you know, without, but it's something that as you gain experience it going through these drafts that you learn about. And I think that's why it's helpful to do a lot of like mock drafts or like these cheaper draft champions drafts or best ball drafts like at a lower uh, price point where you can kind of get a better sense of the player pool how it flows how when you make certain decisions how does it impact you know later on in the draft uh the decisions that that you um you know that you can make uh in those instances so uh that would be my suggestion i hope that's helpful you know, in terms of like kind of thinking about these different, uh, these different pieces, um, if you will. All right. Um, next up, the question is NL only targets starting in minors with early call-ups. Um, early minors, early call-ups. Um, God, I wish I had a list in front of me. I feel like I had at least one, uh, player that I was going to mention in this particular spot. Um, all right, I'm gonna press pause on that and I'm gonna hand her the next question um, and think about um, who uh, some of these guys might, uh, might be. Um, I mean, one tool that you can obviously use is just in, in any draft, use ADP and look at who, who are some of the rookies that are going and then figuring out whether they have a spot um, you know, and, and how to, um, uh, how to, uh, you know, what, the, whether they might come up in May or, or whatnot, but, oh man, it's a really good question. I'm failing miserably at this. This is one of the challenges with doing a pod in the car and not having stuff in front of me. So I apologize for not being able to answer that better. I'll try to get to it, um, in a second, in a little bit. Uh, the last question is positions with talent disparity, um, teardrops and player talent. Um, so I covered this in my last podcast. What I just say is go back and listen to my last mailbag. I essentially went through each position and said by, you know, the, the level of quote unquote scarcity, but really like how deep the position is, I feel. Um, and so I went back on that. So go to episode 114 and listen to the mailbag. I think it's the first question that I addressed. So I won't go back into that one. Um, and then the tiers question. So the question is, are there tier drops of players and talent? 
um, a targeting position sooner. So I've talked about the position sooner a lot. I generally want to target infield first and then use outfield uh, to fill in. I find that the infield positions are scarcer, um, at least second bases. Um, and like the higher quality guys at the infield positions are, are, are obviously going earlier on. And outfield's a lot more flexible. So I can kind of build that foundation with my infield and look for values as I draft. Like if there's really good values, then obviously target those. Um, but, you know, generally like um, target infield first and then use outfield later because it is really deep and there's a variety of different profiles. And then if you can, like leave maybe a shortstop position open because I think there's also a lot of different profiles you can get that or a middle infield position uh, open later on. So I think those are some of the some of the things that I would say, kind of building infield first, followed by outfield, not being like super rigid about it, uh, going after values, but having a priority on those positions, um, you know, uh, just slightly ahead of the other positions because of how, uh, of the level of depth and the level of scarcity within the positions uh, for different categories and things like that is what I would say. In terms of the tier drops offs, this is one of the things that I find super helpful about the valuations is generating a dollar value, is that it gives you a sense of what the tiers are and where the big drop offs happen. Uh, Ariel Cohen is, is a great listen and he refers to these as hot spots, but essentially being able to see that there's a group of guys you know, that are all similarly valued at a position and then being able to wait to get one of the last guys so that you can target other positions where you know they may be a little bit more scarce at that point in time, or they may be experiencing a tier tier drop off earlier on, and that really helps allow you to maximize uh, value as much as possible. Um, I'd also just be uh, cognizant of where there are uh, tier drops in terms of the categories. So, like I just mentioned earlier, like there's that uh, Ahmed Rosario, uh, Elvis Andrews. Um, Tim Anderson kind of group within 30 picks there of these like fast shortstops. So knowing that those fast shortstops and those stolen bases from the shortstop position dry up a little bit more um, after those guys are gone, you know, would be really, really helpful as well. So that's kind of what I would say is generate the valuations and look for those drops and use that as one of the considerations that you factor in when thinking about when to draft one guy versus another guy um, uh, in your drafts. All right, that is all the questions that I got. I hope this mailbag, this um, you know, this uh, on the road uh, podcast has been uh, an enjoyable one for you. It certainly has been enjoyable for me. It's really helped me, um, you know, kind of burn the time here uh, as as I as as I drive. So really appreciate that. Thanks for all the questions. Super thoughtful questions really enjoy those. I hope the, the answers uh, were helpful. Um, and I will talk to uh, you all soon um, on an upcoming podcast. Thanks so much for listening to this on, on the road uh, mailbag. That is going to wrap us up for episode 117 of the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed another one of the On the Road uh, podcasts where I am driving and podcasting at the same time. 
Next up, uh, later this week, this week is like full of podcasts. I think I'm going to have four podcasts this week. Uh, tomorrow, um, or actually today probably when you're listening to this in the evening, I'm going to be interviewing Justin Mason. Um, so really excited about that. Justin has been um, a big supporter of mine for a long time, and he has helped um, both uh, – he has helped provide a lot of opportunities for me in the industry. So really excited to talk to him. Just a little bit about you know his role overall in the industry, not necessarily how he got started because he's done a few podcasts doing that, but just really kind of learning a little bit about the different projects that he's working on, how they've kind of taken shape, a little bit about that as well as his process as a fantasy analyst. So really looking forward to that. Uh, definitely check it out. But uh, best of luck with all of your fantasy baseball research. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and be kind to one another.